Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Paul Zach. Paul, are you ready to do this? Let's do it. Excellent. Let's do this. Paul is a neuroeconomist with degrees in mathematics and economics, as well as a PhD in economics. He directs a Center for Neuroeconomic Studies at Claremont Graduate University. He's an author of several books, including Trust Factor, and he's the CEO of Emergent Neuroscience and O-Factor, Inc. Excited to have you on. Paul, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, clearly I'm a weirdo because I can't just do one thing, so that's the first thing to know. Um, yeah, so I'm cross-trained in, in economics and neuroscience and helped start this field called neuroeconomics and then subsequently started uh, help start neuromarketing and neuromanagement. So really using um, uh, measures of brain activity to understand how we improve the way organizations work and the, or that organization could be your family, could be a business organization, could be a nonprofit. Um, so I guess the, the key is I'm a tool guy. So I like to, to understand problems and then create tools to solve those problems. And so those tools sometimes spin out into, into companies. Got it. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that you're sort of pioneering this field or, or working to it, it, it advance the field because I stumbled over how to say it. And then I was trying to recall if that was offered at my university, but I didn't think that it was. So not that I would have been studying it anyway, but <laughs> so well, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a relatively new field. Yeah. Here's the pitch for, for this is, you know, you've seen the humans. They're odd. They're not odd species, right? So <laughs> Um, if we ask people why they do what they do, they just can't tell us. And one of the kind of core, uh, I would say principles, but it's almost a religion in economics is that people are fully informed on their decisions. They know why they're doing what they're doing and they're making some kind of thoughtful decision on what to do. And that is completely counter to what neuroscience tells us. And so there's a big abyss there between what people, what we sort of assume people do in economics and what people really do from a, a neuroscience or even psychology perspective. So to bridge those two, we really have to both measure brain activity while people make decisions and then work backwards and ask, uh, are the decisions the decisions that are most suited for that person or could they be making better decision, decisions? And uh, if so, how might we help them? So that's where the tools come in. Very cool. Is this what you thought that you were going to be doing did 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 you set out to to do this no way <laughs> uh it was really out of frustration that uh because i had this background in biology and neuroscience i'm a professor of economics but increasingly i really couldn't do my job well because the kind of interesting decisions that we see in the world in the laboratory uh where people interact with each other for example there's this field called game theory um, humans are not great game theorists. Uh, animals are great at, at strategic decisions, but humans are not. And if you ask them why, uh, you don't know. So, you know, they just can't tell you. So uh, when I lived in Arizona, we just talked about this when we were off air, um, uh, the gentleman who would eventually win the Nobel Prize in economics for inventing experimental economics, Vernon Smith, spent 26 years at University of Arizona. And I would randomly drive out from Phoenix to his office in Tucson and knock on his door. He didn't know me from Adam. And just say, hey, I've been reading your papers, and uh, it seems like no one really knows in the laboratory why people are doing what they're doing. And and he said, yeah, there's a, just a, all these these social decisions. You know, we just don't have a good sense of why people are doing what they're doing. And so you must talk to the people in experiments. What do they say? And he goes, 
let me tell you what the most common answer is when we ask them, like, you know, why did you share money with this person in a lab? Or, you know, why did you buy this, uh, you know, doodad? So the most common answer is, uh, I don't know. So you can't build a theory and I don't know, right? That, nope. that doesn't move us forward. So, so my lab and, and a number of others developed a way to measure productivity while people made decisions to really understand why they're doing what they're doing. And the punchline, George, is that I've become very, very humble about using words like irrational or confused. Our brain is optimizing second by second. And what looks like irrationality is sometimes just driven by the brain's need to either save energy by doing the same thing over and over habitually or because there's some change in the internal external environment that that person is not even aware of often, right? I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm stressed, um, uh, things smell funny, whatever it is, that's gonna change the way my brain processes information. So it's not that people are inconsistent or weird or stupid, it's that their you know, uh, brain systems have evolved to help us survive and reproduce, full stop. And you know, we're just trying to do that second by second. So uh, for listeners, it means be tolerant with yourself, be tolerant with the people around you, because you know we're all just trying to do our best and we're missing the mark most of the time. That's okay. Evolution only gives us good enough, doesn't give us perfect. Fair enough. I think that's that's excellent insight and, and excellent advice to people, um, not to be too hard on ourselves. Um, that being said, I think that we've all been part of an organization at some point in our lives that that is full of people who trust one another because we think that we have our best interests in mind. And I think that we've all been probably part of an organization that, that is not a high trust organization and we're suspicious or we're wary of the people that maybe they don't have our best interests in mind. And I would have to think that the majority of us want to be part of a group that is high trust. And if you're running an organization, you want the people that are working there to feel like they should be able to trust you. And this is a big part of your work. Yes. It is. Uh, our, our lab was the first to develop a, a procedure to measure in human beings the production of a neurochemical called oxytocin that we were the first to show uh, is released when someone trusts us and motivates us to work on their behalf. Um, so it's basically the biological basis for the golden rule. Uh, we measure this in blood. We've uh, developed a way to shoot synthetic oxytocin into people's brains safely. So we really understand that a lot of our social nature is driven by our sensitivity uh, and release of this neurochemical, uh, which increases our sense of empathy. So uh, at some point, companies started coming to my lab saying, gosh, we think trust is important in our organization. And uh, you know, how can you advise us how to build a high trust organization? And because I'm a complete nerd, George, you know, my first answer was, <laughs> uh, sure, I have this blood test and I can take blood from your employees and measure their oxytocin. And you know, these executives' faces would turn white. And they were like, oh my God, you know, like, we can't do that. You know, don't you, aren't there principles and for organizations? And I said, eh, not really. So I thought, okay, if I'm some, quote, trust expert, how come I can't advise companies? So we spent about eight years uh, doing research in companies and, and in my laboratory, uh, measuring um, oxytocin, measuring brain activity, having people do specific tasks. And we showed a couple things. One is that there are uh, sort of eight core foundations for organizational trust. And somehow those magically spell out the acronym oxytocin. I don't know how that happened. Wow. Uh, so that's really nice, easy to remember. Uh, but second, that uh, trust is a is like um, an absolute accelerator for business performance, multiply measured. So high trust organizations are more profitable. They have higher uh, job retention. 
uh, they have uh, fewer sick days. Uh, they, uh, um, are, you know, are more satisfied as places to work. I mean, on and on and on. Um, so trust is, is a really important factor. And we developed a number of tools to measure and manage organizational trust so that organizations, for-profit, non-profit, can reap the benefits of organizing the humans in a way that they are very effective team members, but also are highly focused on mission. And so those are the kind of two key ingredients uh, that I report in my book, Trust Factor, um, that you, you've got to uh, work to create a culture of trust. Trust is a behavior, not a feeling. So it's specific actions that people do with each other at work. And the second is, once you've got this high trust team, you've got to give them the sense of purpose. Why are we doing what we're doing? Not just what, but why. Humans are really in, interested in knowing why we're going on down this path. And so it requires a lot of uh, uh, kind of feedback, kind of a lived culture of, um, of information sharing and um, everyone kind of pulling in the same direction. So anyway, you know, derive some principles for that and lots of case studies in the book and applications on how to do this. Nice. So as you were talking and explaining what what oxytocin really does, I, I had the thought in my mind of, you know, listening to if it's people talking about their participation on a sports team or in the military of we trusted our coach or our commander so much that we'd run through a wall for, for he or she or we'd, we'd walk over hot coals for this person. Is that sort of is that sort of the phenomenon that we're talking about? Is that oxytocin? It is, right? So um, f- for basically, uh, you know, I've lost track, you know, 30, 40, 50 different kinds of positive social interactions we've measured, they almost all release oxytocin. So almost is the key, right? Not for everybody all the time. And we spent a lot of time looking at what inhibits or promotes oxytocin release. But essentially, if you're nice to me or if you if you um, tell me why something's important to our team, my brain creates this chemical. It reduces my physiologic stress, allows me to, to more effectively focus it also increases my sense of emotional connection to my team members. So now, again, I care not only about understanding what they're doing, but I have a sense of why they care about this so much and that why is really the key. So if I'm going to be an effective team member, I've got to know not only what, but why. Why, why is this so important to you or to our organization? Um, so, so the principles we found are really about allowing people to have reciprocal release of oxytocin uh, among team members so that we're supporting each other, we're giving each other feedback. People are certainly held accountable in high-trust organizations, and we're also shooting for stretch goals. So um, the good and bad news for listeners is that your brain is a super lazy organ. Um, it's lazy because it takes so much energy to run that it basically wants to idle most of the time. And so we can kick us out of that idle gear if we have a challenge, and particularly when that challenge is done as a group. So that's why the, the military has people, you know, march 50 miles with a with a heavy pack in boot camp. It's not about, you don't march in battle, you have a Humvee that takes you in, right? It's about entraining your physiology with these other individuals. And once you've done that under stress, then you can replicate that over and over and over. So, um, so at work, uh, we need to stress people, not chronically, chronic stress is bad, but we need to have what's called challenge stress. I want, to, I want to give you a stretch goal that's so difficult that you've got to pull on all, only, all of your own neural resources, but also pull on the resources of the humans around you to get this thing done. 
And when you do that, you're highly absorbed in this task. You lose track of time and it becomes really enjoyable. Like we had a major hairy goal and we hit it. That's amazing. I feel great about what I did and I did it with trusted team members. Got it. I think that that makes a ton of sense. And it's uh, fascinating to me that, that I'm sure that for as long as there have been organizations, the, the folks leading the organizations have wanted to help their people feel differently, have them feel connected to the mission because they understand that people support what they help to create. And so they're buy-in. And now you're just actually backing it into kind of like you were talking about the actual science behind it and then giving tools. So, okay. So you mentioned having this, this major goal that you're working towards. And I think that that's an excellent example. Can you give us another example of how, what, what an organization can do to inspire or, or put in place a high trust environment like this? Yeah, I'll give you two, two brief examples. One is, is particularly in the world we live in a very low unemployment Consider people who work as volunteers, right? No one's required to work for you. They're choosing to work for you. So we should start treating people like volunteers. If you're a volunteer, you should be asked and you should be thanked. Not that hard, right? Hey, George, I got a great new project with uh, General Motors. It's going to be three months. I'd love to have you lead it. Right. As opposed to, hey, George, you don't look very busy. Damn it. <laughs> work on this. G- right. That's a, that's a different approach. So so what we're finding is these high trust organizations are very much inverted pyramid or servant leader kind of models where the leaders are creating the opportunity for those uh, who are who are on the front lines, creating value to be successful. Um, so here's where the neuroscience comes in. So one of the, the first component on that uh, oxytocin acronym was for ovation, which is uh, thanking people who are high performers. But the science shows you can do this most effectively when it's public, when it's close in time to when the goal is met or exceeded, when it comes from peers, when it's personal, when it's tangible, when it's unexpected. So all of these things have a bigger impact on the brain that begins to instantiate the community standards for high performance that we desire in the organization, right? So you finish this big GM project, and then the next Monday in our all-hands meeting, I come in with a, a, a big basket of uh, Intelligentsia coffee, super great coffee from L.A. And because uh, I know you love coffee so much and we do a, we do a celebration. You do a debrief. You tell us how your team did it. You talk about your team members. So we have not only a celebration, but information sharing acutely. So you're getting feedback all the time. Uh, and I love, by the way, the, the five minute stand up huddle every day in the morning. So um, for, for listeners, it, it's three questions. What happened yesterday? What's your goal today? What help do you need from me? That's it, right? So that just keeps us you know, on track to hit the milestones. And you can see that's very service oriented. If I'm a leader, my job is to make sure you've got what you need to hit your goals. If you're not hitting them, it's not your fault, it's my fault, right? Because I need to be checking in all the time. So um, I don't like desks. I think we should get rid of them. We should just sit wherever we wanna sit. And if you're a leader, you need to be moving around. You need to be working with people um, don't, you don't have a big office, have people come talk to you, get on the front lines, see what's happening. Excellent. And so as, as, as you were talking a little bit before I, I wrote down, this sounds like a lot to implement, but after the last, uh, you sharing just the five minute the information about the five minute huddle and just being active and, and, and communicating with people, it doesn't really take that much once you understand these principles to start implementing them. 
Yeah, and many people have found, many organizations have found this, have had parts of this. And so the book goes through lots of examples of companies like uh, Zappos and Herman Miller and uh, Gore-Tex and you know, lots of places that have, have found parts of this. And then I try to pull from sort of best practice by surveying all this work and then bringing the science to think about how we sort of optimally design this. So the, the reason uh, you know, to, to develop tools is so you're not wasting resources, right? There, there could be lots of ways uh, to try to create a high trust organization, but because we have so much science now, good 20 years of neuroscience on trust, let's apply that uh, to, to really do it the most effective way possible. And effective means I've got to get into your brain and make sure this is having an impact on you. So um, yeah, it's, it's been great fun. And, and for me also, you know, I'm in the lab a lot, so it's fun for me to go out and work with companies uh, and and see the effects of what I'm doing happening at scale. So affecting thousands of people, super fun. Yeah, I think that's very cool. Well, Paul, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? So we've done a lot of work in financial decision-making, and what we found from that is that our brains are really not uh, uh, evolved or very well designed to uh, handle uh, financial data. So uh, in particular, the brain areas that lead to financial decision-making are distributed throughout the brain. So the, the big tip is if it's a big decision involving money, uh, getting married, getting divorced, whatever, something that's going to have a big impact on your life, you should sleep on it. During sleep, we consolidate information so that decisions can be made uh, more uh, effectively. So even though it seems like, you know, operators tending by now, you're going to make a decision now, buy this car now, uh, if you sleep on it, um, the, the parts of the brain that are processing different aspects of that decision will integrate together and you'll have much, uh, much clearer decision in the morning. Well, I think that that is great stuff. That definitely gets it. Come on. Come on. I've always thought, Paul, that sleeping on it makes all the sense in the world and that it was just something to do with my subconscious mind. But it turns out that there's actually science behind that, too. So... <laughs> Um, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Where can they get a copy of your book? Uh, you can find me at pauljzack.com uh, or just Google me and some of the companies will come up. And uh, Trust Factor, the science of creating high-performance companies available at Amazon and your favorite bookstores. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Paul your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to pauljzack, that's P-A-U- ljzak.com and also get a copy of his book and I'll list all those in the notes of the show as well. Thank you again, Paul. Thanks, George. Great to be on with you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!